the Biden administration plans to put over $1 billion towards the largest Everglades investment in history. But with a major project being left out, some feel swamped by the plan. You get a huge infusion one year, but then you don't get much the next year. From Fort Atlantic University's Boca Raton campus, I'm Anya McNabb. And I'm Zachary Weinberger with South Florida Journal for the week of April 1st, 2022. Also this week, in 2017, manatees' removal from the endangered species list alarmed conservationists. This year, manatee deaths have already surpassed previous records, reviving debates over how to protect the mammals. People say, well, you know, they're okay right now. They may not be. The population numbers are not showing any consistency. We'll have these stories and more on this week's South Florida Journal. But first, from Boca Raton, Eston Parker III has some of the other stories making South Florida headlines this week. Bahiamar, the home of the Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show, could be subject to new developments by the end of 2023. The peninsula is worth over $250 million and has become a controversial topic for city commissioners. Although the goal is to create a village for the public, some residents feel that the plan isn't in the public's best interests. Alexa Kislinski has the details. Under the proposed lease, Bahia Mar would become home to an additional 350 condos, along with a public waterfront promenade. The project would give control of the land to a private developer, leaving the city without a say in any changes to the site plan. If approved, the deal would bring in over $2 billion to the city. For Broward County resident Boyd Corbin, this benefits the local government more than its people. It seems like some city commissioners are giving away public park space to finance their future political aspirations. These 100-year unsolicited public-private partnerships are making some people a hell of a lot of money. Couldn't you wait until you're finished raping the city before flashing around your new wealth? With the housing market as high as it is, there are concerns about whether or not the development will be affordable. Still, Stefanos Marve Mikolos, the CEO of the International Yacht Company, views the proposal as a win-win for Fort Lauderdale. I think this uh, park here uh, is an incredible opportunity to rebrand the, uh, the city and uh, uh, truly build something which is totally iconic. While no official decision has been made, residents will be eagerly awaiting Fort Lauderdale Commissioner's final vote on the New Deal next Tuesday. For South Florida Journal, I'm Alexa Kislinski. Palm Beach County Commissioners are initiating the GL Homes land swap, which would allow over 1,000 homes to be built on preserved land. The swap would also generate millions in annual tax revenue. However, some commissioners still feel that the agricultural reserve should be protected. Jackson Gaylor has the story. Palm Beach County commissioners are initiating the GL Homes land swap, which would allow over 1,000 homes to be built on preserved land. The swap would also generate millions in annual tax revenue. However, some commissioners still feel that the agricultural reserve should be protected. In 1994, residents were convinced by the commission that preservation of the land was a priority. County Commissioner David Kerner believes that if approved, the plan would go back on that promise. But it shouldn't be used and it shouldn't be waived and the promises shouldn't be broken so that GL can transfer 1,200 homes to a much higher value area of the county. 
With the vote on February 2nd ending with a tally of 4-3, to three, commissioners intend to move forward but still have the option to change their minds at the end of 2022. Mayor Robert Weinroth feels that the initiation will help the board come to a clearer decision. The fact that we are as split as we are lets you know that we're taking this seriously. This is not a slam dunk, and I'm certainly telling you right now that this doesn't mean that I'm going to be supporting the next step. It remains to be seen what the commissioners will decide when they revisit the plan later this year. For South Florida Journal, I'm Jackson Gaylor. Florida Atlantic University will be the first university in the state to host Bezos Academy, a tuition-free preschool. Children five and under from impoverished families will be selected through a lottery process. While the school is providing many resources to aid these families, activists believe one key element is missing. Taj Deneus has the details. Funded by the executive chair and founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, the preschool promises year-round education with supplies and meals. They don't provide one major resource, however. Joel Herps, FAU's assistant dean of PK-12 schools and educational programs, says that there are no plans to provide transportation. He lists alternatives to the situation. The train station on Yamato, the shuttles from there to here, and other buses that provide transportation to folks who are traveling to and from the campus. Sarah DeBoryort, founder and president of Necessities for Children, argues that transportation should be their top priority. I don't care if you figure it out with FAU or whatever it is, but then you need to figure out that transportation for that or partner with a nonprofit that can raise funds for that and write grants for that. Resource plans aren't set in stone as Bezos Academy is scheduled to open this fall. For South Florida Journal, I'm Taj Deneus. In January, the American Red Cross declared a national blood donation crisis for the first time. Type O positive and O negative blood are critically needed and the most common among African Americans. But less than 3% donate. As Nadia Gordon reports, donation centers seek donor diversity. 37% of the population is eligible to donate blood, yet 70% of the nation's blood supply is Caucasian. This affects those like 17-year-old Port St. Lucie resident Najee Forrest and her two sisters. They have sickle cell disease, an inherited blood disorder most common among African Americans. Forrest says the disease affects just the females in her family, but only her older sister Shakara receives transfusions. We noticed that they would have a really hard time with finding blood. Usually it takes only a few hours or a day at the most. While donations from the same race or ethnicity are more likely to be compatible, New York Blood Center researchers have found that donation rates among Black people are low. Mary Ann Levitt, an assistant professor with FAU's College of Nursing, cites the infamous Tuskegee experiment on Black Americans as one factor. Providers need to understand what these origins of medical mistrust are and acknowledge and affirm their patients' current experiences of discrimination as well as the hundreds of years of institutional racism. After being interviewed for this story, Levitt and her husband donated blood. For South Florida Journal, I'm Nadia Gordon. With the nation continuing to focus on infrastructure, Fort Lauderdale's renovation of the War Memorial Auditorium is on track to open this summer. The $65 million project is a partnership between the city of Fort Lauderdale and the Florida Panthers hockey team. Economists see it as a financial opportunity. However, some veterans are struggling to see the benefits of renovating a facility meant to honor them. 
Colby Guy has the details. Big changes are coming to the Fort Lauderdale War Memorial, with the auditorium getting an expansive overhaul. The project is set to add on a concert hall that can hold nearly 4,000 people, along with restaurant spaces, two ice rinks, and a practice facility for the Florida Panthers. U.S. Homeland Security economist Jamal Pitts sees the financial benefits to the project. Sometimes it costs more money to destroy something than to just add on. Most governments use infrastructure as a joke to their economy. The Panthers are making a big splash with this deal, believing the renovations will bring more locals to the sport of hockey. But, as Air Force veteran and Sunrise resident Jordan Leafat puts it, the expensive project leaves much to be desired. I was kind of like dumbfounded about how much they were putting in to revitalize it. It's cool, and it's awesome to look at, but, I mean, what does it actually do for us? I don't, I don't know. While others may share LeFat's concern, Fort Lauderdale hopes the renovation will attract more tourists and boost the local economy. Meanwhile, the Panthers look to build a stronger hockey fan base in South Florida. For South Florida Journal, I'm Colby Guy. Two years ago, Boynton Beach drew national headlines, a lawsuit, and a discrimination complaint for whitewashing a mural intended to honor its first black female firefighter. Now, the city is trying to rectify the issue by naming a fire station after the mural subject, Latasha Clemens. But as Kennedy McKinney reports, something as seemingly easy as a name change is getting pushback within City Hall. Following the mural incident of 2020, Latasha Clemens, the city's first black female firefighter, filed a lawsuit suing the city for damages. The city settled and gave her $100,000. However, it didn't end there. Boynton Beach Mayor Stephen Grant proposed the city name Fire Station Number 1 after Clemens because he felt the monetary compensation wasn't enough. The lawsuit doesn't necessarily heal the wounds of removing somebody who contributed to the city for well over 25 years. But city leaders like Vice Mayor Woodrow Hay argue that other people have made contributions to the city and changing the name sets a bad precedent. However, Latasha Clemens says naming the fire station will inspire the community. I think it will impact those little girls that are hoping one day to aspire to be a firefighter and they can see someone who they can attain to be. At the March 1st City Commission meeting, the board voted to proceed with the renaming and established an advisory committee to review the proposal and make a final decision. For South Florida Journal, I'm Kennedy McKinney. Those were some of the stories making South Florida headlines this week. From Boca Raton, I'm Eston Parker III. Remember to follow South Florida Journal on Spotify and follow us on Instagram at SoFloJournal. You're listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Anya McNabb. And I'm Zachary Weinberger. Just ahead. In 2017, manatees' removal from the endangered species list alarmed conservationists. This year, manatee deaths have already surpassed previous records, reviving debates over how to protect the mammals. But first, the Biden administration plans to put over $1 billion towards the largest Everglades investment in history. The funds will go to projects aiming to counteract climate change within the ecosystem. But with the Everglades Agricultural Area Reservoir being left out of the equation, some Florida legislators feel swamped by the plan. 
South Florida Journal's Isabel Forsman has been covering the story. This week, she sat down with Catherine Ambrosio Viejas and told her more about it. Thank you for joining us today, Isabel. Thank you for having me. So, tell me a little bit more about why the Everglades needed this funding and how they're using this money to restore it. Well, the Everglades ecosystem stretches over 18,000 square miles from the Kissimmee River to the Florida Bay. Today, the Everglades is half its original size. The bird population has declined and there are 68 plant and animal species that are endangered. Keely Weicker, who is part of the Everglades Foundation, told me a little bit more on how important this funding actually is. The Everglades is sequestering carbon, so it's um, mitigating climate change. So it's sequestering carbon, it's slowing down um, sea level rise. Um, by having that fresh water kind of pushing out, it's helping uh, slow that sea level rise. And then it's also um, helps against storm surge. So when we think about hurricanes coming through, it can hold a lot of water. So yes, the funding is going to be a huge step. The Everglades has never received this much money before. In fact, from 1993 to 2000, the funding totaled $1.2 billion. So to receive almost the same amount in one year is monumental. It seems as though this funding for the Everglades is really needed. How important is it for Floridians to be aware of this project? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is so important to not only Floridians, but people across the country. The Everglades supplies the drinking water for 8 million Floridians. Climate change could have a seriously negative impact on Florida's environment. And on top of it, the Everglades restoration will create 45,000 jobs, and it's the state's greatest tool in mitigating climate change harm. Captains for Clean Water Director of Policy Jessica Pinsky describes the process a little bit more. Something that we've learned at, at Captains, our organization was founded by, you know, two fishing guides who were no longer able to fish because of bad water quality on the west coast of Florida. That bad water quality was a direct result of those discharges from Lake Okeechobee. And, you know, these two young guys, they figured out very quickly that Everglades restoration was the solution to alleviating those discharges. We just need to all be aware of what's happening because it does affect all of us. The public information coordinator at South Florida Water Management District, Jason Schultz, says that all CERP projects are important to the work of restoring the Everglades. Floridians remember the devastating impacts of harmful Lake Okeechobee discharges to the estuaries, and the associated blue-green algae blooms that blanketed the coast. So Schultz knows firsthand how important this donation is. A lot of money is being invested in this project. How effectively is it being spent? This is definitely a huge stepping stone for the restoration process. Although I will say some have concluded that they should have focused more on the EAA reservoir, which didn't receive any of that funding, and Weicker explained to me in a little bit more detail. I mean, just a little historical bit is that SERP was passed in 2000. And so this has been, we're now in the 22nd year of, uh, of Everglades <laughs> restoration. So, I mean, it's been going on for a very, very long time. And that is part of it is, okay, we have to get consistent funding every year because if you get a huge infusion one year, but then you don't get much the next year, 
right. someone has to go in and, and autocorrect basically where that money is going. And it's almost like the conveyor belt slows down or it stops. And so that's why um, we are grateful for the $1.1 billion because it is pushing um, those projects across the line, but we still need to focus on the EAA Reservoir, the uh, Everglades Agricultural Area Reservoir, because that is kind of the heart of Everglades restoration. That's what's going to eliminate the harmful discharges to the Caloosahatchee and St. Lucie. And it's also going to get that water south through Everglades National Park and to Florida Bay, where they need they need that fresh water. Even though the funding isn't going towards the EAA Reservoir, there are still many other projects to be done. We're just one step closer in restoring the nature of the Everglades. We'll be watching to see how this project progresses. Thank you so much for your insight, Isabel. You're very welcome. South Florida Journal's Isabel Forsman telling us about plans to implement new federal funding for Everglades restoration. Remember to follow South Florida Journal on Spotify and follow us on Instagram at Journal. You're listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Anya McNabb. And I'm Zachary Weinberger. Since 2017, the manatee has only been considered a threatened species. But last year, when more than 1,000 sea cows died of starvation, some conservationists worried that the species were more likely endangered. This past fall, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission responded with a feeding program, distributing about 50 tons of lettuce in the Indian River Lagoon. The FWC feeding program is winding down this month as the mammals begin their annual migration north. Yet, manatee deaths have continued unabated, with almost 400 already reported this year. The alarming numbers have revived long-running debates over the manatee's status, as well as how to protect the species. The proposal to downgrade the manatee from endangered to threatened originated with the Pacific Legal Foundation. PLF comprised coastal developers, the boating industry, and waterfront property owners around Crystal River. PLF had been protesting against waterway speed limits and dock restrictions along the Crystal River, a popular gathering place for manatees between November and April. We covered the story in 2015 at the height of the protest. South Florida Journal alum Sarah Martinez examined the key issues that are still relevant today. Numerous threats have capped manatees on the endangered species list. The mammal's mortality rate is higher than its birth rate, resulting in a population that rarely grows. Conservationists argue that manatees are not listed as endangered exclusively because of their current population, but rather because their habitats are constantly threatened. Dr. Maya Rodriguez is an expert on manatees. She holds a doctorate focusing on zoo, wildlife, and emergency medicine. Working as a veterinarian for the Miami Sea Aquarium since 1997, she is also a participant of the Manatee Rehabilitation Partnership Program. They've been around for 50 million years. So sometimes when people say, well, you know, they're okay right now, they may not be, especially when the numbers are showing that there's not, the population numbers are not showing any consistency, and which is what we have right now. We have inconsistent right now with the mortality numbers. Being listed as an endangered species is a familiar title for the manatee. Since the 1970s, it's been protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972, the Federal Endangered Species Act of 1973, and the Florida Manatee Sanctuary Act of 1978. 
Kelsey Jennings is a senior staff biologist for Save the Manatee Club. The manatees have been an endangered species since the Endangered Species Act came out. Um, so they're an original to the endangered species list. The counts back then were quite low right when the Endangered Species Act began. So from there, it was 1973 that it came about, and they've been endangered since then. We have seen the population rise, but with the current habitat threats and everything that's going on, they're, they're still on the list. Over the years, threats to manatees have increased. The initial reasoning behind their endangered species listing was simple. Dr. Tom Reinhardt, the research administrator with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, clarifies how manatees got on the list. You know, habitat loss and concerns for that, or really, that was actually the original reason manatees were put on the endangered species list. Uh, they didn't have a good population estimate, but some of the main early fears were loss of seagrasses, loss of warm water springs, things that manatees depend upon. During the winter months, thousands of manatees migrate through Florida's waterways. Save the Manatee Club's Kelsey Jennings says that despite their size, manatees lack the necessary body fat to withstand cold ocean temperatures. So manatees can survive in both fresh and salt water, depending on the time of the year they actually live in both. Uh, the one thing they do require is water that is over 68 degrees Fahrenheit. So in the wintertime, we have warm water habitats, is what we refer to them as. That's generally natural springs, which run at 72 degrees, or power plants, which have warm water effluent from cooling off their machinery. They, they put the warm water back out there. So for manatees, they need to have clean and warm water in the wintertime. When water temperatures drop, manatees seek Florida's warmer waters. One of the most popular spots is Crystal River in Kings Bay on the west coast of Florida. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service officially designated the area as a sanctuary. Some residents are unhappy with the sanctions and restrictions that come with this status. Stephen Lamb, vice president of Save Crystal River, Inc., spoke with NPR reporter Greg Allen. For 30 years, I've watched them take one bite at a time out of our community, and whether that's rules, regulations, whatever it is. We decided enough was enough. The region's status as a manatee sanctuary frustrates waterfront property owners, limiting their ability to make changes to their own backyard. Dr. John Moore teaches courses in marine biology, zoology, and conservation at Florida Atlantic University. With research that also includes ecology, deep-sea fishes, and Florida's natural habitats, he understands their frustration. The people in Crystal River decided that they were a bit concerned under endangered status. There were things that Fish and Wildlife Service could do to prevent people from developing land or from putting in docks or all sorts of other things. And they wanted the Fish and Wildlife Service to lower the protection to threaten so that they could do those sorts of things along the coast. Members of the local group Save Crystal River argue that manatees should be downlisted from endangered to threatened. They point to a recent U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service report indicating an increase in the manatee population. Dr. John Moore recognizes the implications of the downlisting. Actually, downlisting the manatees to threatened status doesn't remove things like the boating speed limits. Those sorts of protections stay in place. The main thing the downlisting does is that all protections uh, when it's an endangered species are mandatory, but when it's a threatened species, people can do individual petitions to lessen mm -hmm. the protection in certain situations. And if Fish and Wildlife approves those petitions, then people, for instance, can build a dock or something like that. Population counts are very important in determining if a species should be endangered. 
While manatees currently number 6,000 across Florida, the main concern now is with mortality rates. FAU journalism professor Neil Santaniello was formerly an environmental reporter for the Sun-Sentinel. Throughout his career, he has provided extensive manatee coverage, including the mammal's mortality rate. We've had in recent years, within the last half decade or so, some record numbers of manatee mortality. 2010 was a record year, and 2013 broke that record. Manatees suffer from natural and man-made threats. They can live for as long as 60 years. But according to Amber Howell, a marine mammal biologist and a research associate with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, the sheer number of threats they face renders their average lifespan much shorter. Major causes of death would be boat strike as well as any kind of natural effects, which could be red tide blooms or cold stress. Uh, manatees are very sensitive to the cold weather. Red tide, a naturally occurring algae bloom, is one of the top threats to manatees. It grows in large numbers and contains a toxic substance that essentially poisons the manatee when it is ingested. Save the Manatee Club, Kelsey Jennings, is especially familiar with the recent algae outbreaks along the West Coast. So we saw just under 300 manatees come in dead in 2013 from the red tide. We're actually seeing red tides starting again right now coming inland. There's been a huge bloom off West Coast for a while now, and we're getting reports of fish kills and possibly some manatees that are being impacted by that. Pollution is another threat to manatees. As tourism increases, so does the amount of trash left on beaches and waterways. As a very curious species, manatees poke around and often ingest things harmful to them. Pollutants that enter the waters can exacerbate algae bloom. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission's Dr. Tom Reinart says these can take a variety of forms. We've seen in the Indian River Lagoon uh, massive algae blooms. And those algae blooms are largely fueled by increased nutrients. And nu increased nutrients is, is a pollutant. Organic fertilizers, other pollutants, sewage outfalls, septic tanks that are leaking can increase the nutrients in the water which fuel these algae blooms. And those algae blooms will then shade out the natural seagrasses, which is what the manatees depend upon and eat. Boats pose another threat to the species. Manatees are sliced by propellers and crushed by hulls. 2013 saw 72 of these cases in Florida, with six occurring in the local Tri-County area. Veterinarian Maya Rodriguez of the Miami Seaquarium frequently works with manatees in rehabilitation. One recent case involved Clarity, a young manatee hit by a boat in Crystal River. If you see the line on her back, she was actually hit what we call the boat hull. So that's a hull mark. It's just one line and because the bottom of the boat is a V, and it's when the boat hits them, and sometimes pretty fast, and the impact continues to travel. On her, what happened, and unfortunately, is it literally broke her spine in two and also displaced it. So the bump that you see is actually her spine broken and displaced, and it's permanently like that. We can never put that back in place. Speeding in manatee zones is considered a crime, but Sergeant James Pike, a Tequesta police officer and water patrolman, says this is commonly overlooked by South Florida boaters. We see a lot of violations, but most of the violations are an act of not knowing the laws or the areas. I have very little repeat customers, as I call them. Stop them, give them a warning, give them a little education, and normally I never see them violating again. 
Floridians reinforced efforts to protect the manatee when they approved the Florida Water and Land Conservation Initiative, also known as Amendment 1. Seventy-five percent of voters supported the measure, which included conservation and protection of natural habitats. Wildlife activists hope that more citizens will join this movement to save endangered species. For South Florida Journal, I'm Sarah Martinez. Reporting for our Manatee Story was contributed by Michael Desjardins, Samantha Pierce, John Mason, and Betsy Bedell. Reporting for our War Memorial Auditorium Story, heard earlier in our newscast, was contributed by Kizzy Ascarate. You've been listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Anya McNabb. And I'm Zachary Weinberger. South Florida Journal is a joint production of Dr. Kevin Petrick's broadcast and advanced broadcast journalism classes in FAU School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. Hi, I'm Alexa Kislinski, and I'm your South Florida Journal producer. Here's the rest of the crew. This is Colby Guy with... Anya McNabb. Jackson Gaylor. Esten Parker III. And Catherine Ambrosio Villegas. And we're your assignment editors. Our writers are Jackson Gaylor, Alexa Kislinski, Esten Parker III, Colby Guy, Anya McNabb, and Zachary Weinberger. Our audio editors are Elliot Rodriguez, Brandon Baring, and Esten Parker III. But let's not forget our social media coordinators, Anya McNabb, and Brandon Baring. Stay connected and follow us on Instagram at SoFoJournal. Thank you for tuning in and make sure to join us for the next South Florida Journal.